Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The church is to welcome sinners with mercy and grace to find repentance, healing, and restoration. See, that's what we're doing. God loves you. In your sin, God loves you. But he loves you so much, he will not let you stay where you're at. You see, that's repentance. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, in a message titled, Everyday Discipleship and Church Discipline. Now, here's Pastor Brian. In Victoria, Australia, if a same-sex attracted person came to me and said, you know, I, I don't really know that I want to stay in this lifestyle. I feel like, you know, I, I'm feeling convicted or whatever. If I was a pastor in Victoria, Australia, I could not advise, counsel, or even pray for that person without breaking the law. That's happening in Canada. I mean, this is, this is where Western culture has gone and is going. So you can see that this makes church discipline very challenging, very, very difficult. Nevertheless, the church is called still at times to exercise church discipline. Now, let me just say this again. Not just over sins of a sexual nature, that's the context, as we've seen here, but also over other sins like those mentioned, greed, idolatry, slander, swindling, and, and so forth. So it's not, you know, the culture has a big obsession with sex, and the culture ends up always sort of accusing the church of being obsessed with sex. Like, like the only sin in the Bible is sex. <laughs> you know, no, there's plenty of sins, you know, it's interesting. Some, a few years ago, I was, reading through, um, I was reading through Leviticus 18, and I can't remember the number, but there's like 20, uh, there's something like 24 prohibitions regarding sexual behavior in Leviticus 18. And out of the 24, one of them has to do with same-sex relations. So Maybe I'm not right with the number, but let's just say 23 of the prohibitions deal with opposite-sex relationships. But again, the Bible has plenty to say about slander and about idolatry and about greed and, and those kinds of things. So, but again, this is the world we live in. So... Here's some questions that I want to address as we wind down here. When does a church practice this kind of discipline? When does a church practice this kind of discipline? And we'll call it formal church discipline. Formal church discipline, meaning the, the elders, the leaders of the church, they have to deal in a, somewhat of a public fashion with this kind of sin. When, when the sin is outward, seen or heard, 
when it is serious, sin that would question somebody's identity with and devotion to Jesus and key, unrepentant. Unrepentant, the person involved has been confronted with God's command in scripture, but he or she refuses to let go of the sin. From all appearances, the person prizes their sin more than they prize Jesus. So this is an extreme case. That's why in all the years I've been in pastoral ministry, I haven't even experienced this very often. And on the same kind of level as Paul is describing here, maybe only one time. So this is reserved for very serious situation. I mean, sometimes this would happen in the context of a, even say a, a religious leader who is sinning. And that person has to be dealt with publicly because of their influence and so forth. So that is when, when it's outward, serious, and unrepentant. Now, here's another question. How is a person under church discipline to be interacted with by members of the church? So let's just say there is a person who's being disciplined by the church. There's a person who, you know, a particular congregation, the leadership and so forth, have agreed that this person is in rebellion. This person is uh, spreading their rebellion and, and contaminating the church like, like a cancer. And so now we have got to deal with this person and put them out. How then do we interact with a person who's under that kind of church discipline? Well, first of all, we have to always act in love and humility with an eye toward repentance. So repentance is, it's a non-negotiable. In other words, you've got to move away from that. But we have to approach it with love and humility. Paul, in writing to the Galatians in the sixth chapter, he, he, says if, he says, if anyone is overtaken in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore that person in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So you see, this isn't a thing where I'm, I'm supposed to now treat this person horribly. I'm supposed to you know, talk about them and tell people what they're doing. Or if I see them, I'm supposed to shun them and get as far away from them as I can. I'm supposed to shame them. This is not the way we deal with it. We deal with it in love, humility, with an eye toward repentance, focusing on their life being out of line with the gospel. This isn't personal. This is about you and Christ and your, your confession of faith. And it's about their presence in the community being missed. Like, you know what? We miss you. We want you to come back. You're part of this family. God has a plan. It's like, a, it's like having a wayward child. And what, as a parent, what do you want to see your child do? You want to see your child be brought back into full communion with the family. That's the idea here. And so... Family members should continue to fulfill family obligations. Now, let's just say this happens, you know, with an actual family member. Don't kick your kids out and cut family out of your life. 
that is the wrong way to approach it. Now, some people have thought and mistakenly, I think, interpreted some of these sayings to mean that I can no longer have any association with you because you are now in sin and I can't, our relationship is cut off. You're, you're no longer my child or you're no longer my family member because of this. That, that's not the right way to approach it. Uh, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, 1 Timothy 5, 8, 1 Peter 3, 1, 1 and 2, all would, would speak against that kind of approach. You see, again, we want to, in love and humility, we want to seek to draw the person back in. But there's, there is that issue that, that has to be dealt with. Like I said, this has happened many times. I've talked to people who, because of their choices, they've, they've been cut off by their Christian family. And I, th- I think that, that that can be very wrong. I mean, there, there are times when maybe you need distance. You know, maybe, maybe you have a family member, a relative who is a dangerous drug dealer. And therefore you say, well, you know, we're not going to invite you over to the family party because we don't want people driving by and shooting up our house. I mean, those things happen, right? So, I mean, there's, there's common sense that we use in this. But we also have to remember that love, mercy, compassion, those are the things that are oftentimes going to be the, the key in, in bringing people back in. And so if they enter into a lifestyle that we disapprove of or something like that, we, we should not just automatically say, okay, that's it. We need to be really wise and we need to let love be the governing thing. But, of course, there is the issue of dealing with the sin as well. Now, the church's objective, and we'll talk about this more in just a second, but the church's objective is always to restore repentant individuals to fellowship. And so when we see that a person has responded, they've complied, they've, they've done what the scripture requires of them, then we should welcome them back in with open arms. We should not put them on some sort of a probation. We should not uh, make them feel like they're second-class citizens. We should celebrate that somebody who was lost is found. And, we, you know, we should, we should be happy and encouraging about it. Now, the goal of discipline is, as I've said already, it's restoration. That's the goal. That's what we want. That's what we're longing for. Churches pursue discipline with the aim of saving people. Churches pursue discipline when they see a member taking a path toward death that they refuse to turn back from. But again, salvation and restoration are the ultimate goal. A man named Warren Wiersbe, he said this, and I think it's appropriate. He said, church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch sinners. Rather, it's a group of brokenhearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. That's exactly what it is. 
We do not do this from a position of superiority. We do this from a position of love. Discipline aims to protect the church. So I have a responsibility to protect the people of God. So if somebody comes in and tries to introduce a a teaching or tries to impose behavior or something like that that is sinful, we have the responsibility to say, no, you can't do that here. So Pastor John Chubik reminded me of something that I actually forgot about that is so, I mean, it so fits with this. And it's a story that goes back many years, but you know, we did a lot of church planting in Eastern Europe years and years ago. And John reminded me of the situation. Let me just say this first. So discipline aims to protect the church just as cancer spreads from one cell to another. So sin quickly spreads from one person to another. Therefore, it must be dealt with decisively. So this is the story that John reminded me of. So there was a, uh, a young girl. She was very gifted. She was uh, musically talented. She was committed to Jesus. She had come to faith. She went to Bible college and we supported her for her time in Bible college. She really got equipped. She went back to her country and to her church. She became the worship leader in her church, and it was a very wonderful thing. But then she just decided that she was going to move in with, first of all, she decided she was going to date this non-Christian guy, and then she decided she was going to move in with him. And when this was brought to the attention of the elders of the church, they went to her and said, look, you know, you can't do that. And she said, well, I don't think it's a problem. And what happened is her behavior started affecting the young uh, girls in the church because she was looked up to. And so they thought, well, if she could do that, we could do that too. So all of these young girls started dating non-Christian guys and and so on. So it finally came to a point where they said, okay, you know, you're, you're not repentant. So obviously you can't continue to lead the church in worship. So they had her step down from worship, but they wanted to be gracious. So they said, you know, you don't have to leave the church, but you can't be involved in service as long as this is going on and you need to get this sorted out. So they kept giving her space and space and, you know, she never responded. She was insisting like everything was okay. She didn't need to to comply with them on that. Well, she finally did leave the church, apparently, because she didn't show up for a season and nobody heard a single thing from her. And then they discovered that she had been murdered by her boyfriend that she moved in with. Wow. Man. Heavy. So if she would have responded to the church discipline, she'd still be alive today. But because she shunned it, She put herself in this position. I mean, talk about turning them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I mean, she wanted to sleep with Satan, so to speak, and this is where it got her. Now, that's obviously an extreme case, but nevertheless, it's the same same thing. She, her sin began to contaminate, and it ended up destroying her as well. So, discipline aims to protect the church. Discipline aims to present a good witness for Jesus. 
to show a distinction between the people of God and the people of this world. Church discipline, listen, strange to say, is actually good for non-Christians to see. It's actually good for non-Christians to see because it helps to preserve the distinctiveness of God's people. Remember, Christianity is not just another religion. It is a new way to be human. Churches are to be salt and light to the surrounding world. You know, in this past year, we've had some serious stuff with high-profile Christian leaders coming out and real, you know, being exposed that they've been in sin and, and you know. And... Some leaders in the church have done the right thing by speaking out against it and rightfully condemning that behavior. You know, some other Christians have pushed back and said, everybody's sinners, why are you even saying this? But you know, the world is looking on and saying, okay, we knew that was messed up. We're really glad that you know it's messed up too. Because if you guys thought it was okay, then you are completely discredited before us. So you see, it has an effect on the world. The world knows, just like the pagans knew that this guy sleeping with his dad's wife, that is nuts. That is over the top. We pagans, we don't even do that stuff. Just like they knew that, they know this too. That if there's no discipline, if there's a past that's given, if there's just like, well, we're all human and we all, you know, and we just sweep it under the carpet and ignore it, they see that. And it dishonors Christ. So here's the thing. The underlying motive in every act of church discipline must be love. We do this not out of spite, not out of anger, not out of hate. We do it out of love. Love for the individual person because we know that this is a path that's going to lead to misery and, and hardship and destruction. Love for the church, because the church is the body of Christ. Love for the watching world. We want the world to be saved. So this is a way of loving, showing them the distinction, and love for Christ. God, after all, remember, disciplines those that he loves. That's what the Bible tells us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his child. And so church discipline is for the sake of the individual, the church, Jesus, and the reputation of the gospel. Now, in closing, let me say this. Church discipline is not a self-righteous, holy crusade against sinners. Remember, the church is the place where sinners find refuge. Our doors are open to sinners. And if our doors weren't open to sinners, then none of us would be here, right? Because we're all sinners. And the only difference between us and people outside living whatever life they're living is the grace of God. We've received it. They haven't yet received it. We want them to receive it. So the the doors of the church are open. 
The church is to welcome sinners with mercy and grace to find repentance, healing, and restoration. See, that's what we're doing. Mercy and grace, come on in. But there's repentance, of course. God loves you. In your sin, God loves you. But he loves you so much, he will not let you stay where you're at. You see, that's repentance. And so we welcome with mercy and grace to find repentance, healing, and restoration. The church should never preserve or protect sin. And that's what the Corinthian leaders were doing. They were proud of this. Oh, we're, we're so tolerant. You know, they, the culture around them, some of them thought, yeah, tolerance, of course, that's, that's great. So they were actually preserving and protecting sin. The, the church should never do that. That would be to dishonor our Savior, Christ. The church is to shine through mercy and grace the glorious goodness of God who welcomes all people, who welcomes all sinners of every shape and size and kind, but welcomes them into a new life by the power of the Spirit to be transformed. So, since God's heart for sinners is always restoration, let us confess our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then let us go forward to walk in the light as he is in the light, that we might have fellowship with him, that we might have fellowship with each other, and that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, might go on continually cleansing us from sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And as we think about that, as we think about, you know, again, sin is not some fun, cool thing that God just wants to make us miserable by keeping us from it. God knows that sin is destructive. Sin will destroy you. And that's why Jesus came and died for sin. So that sin could be forgiven and a relationship could be restored with God and we could go on to live whole and healthy lives. The lives that God intends for us. For the month of February, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Know Why You Believe by Paul E. Little. Does God really exist? And if he does, why is there so much suffering in the world? Doesn't science actually disprove the Bible? So how can we even trust what the Bible says? What proof is there that Jesus really rose from the dead? If you've ever wondered about these questions, then this month's book, Know Why You Believe by Paul E. Little, will help you answer these very questions and many others. If you want to wrestle with your own questions or the questions of others about the practical implications of the Christian faith, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. 
The book, Know Why You Believe by Paul E. Little, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of 1 Corinthians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. Hi, this is Cheryl and Brian Broderson. And we wanted to tell you that we're going to Israel in October 2022. And we want you there with us. Yeah, the dates are October 23rd through November 4th, and this is going to be a tremendous trip. Cheryl, what's your favorite thing about Israel? I love the Galilee, but Brian, you and I both know there's so much because we love watching the Bible come alive, whether you're at Tel Aviv or you're at Jerusalem or Caesarea. Yep. Or Mount Mount Carmel. Carmel. Yes. And it is the trip of a lifetime. So we'd love to have you join us. And if you're interested, we're going to have an informational meeting on Sunday, March 20th at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Or you can find out the details if you go online at israel.cccm.com. Yep. We hope you can join us. It's going to be great. It will be. 